So today, guys, I'd like you to take out your notes, and there I want to conclude the series, which we've been in for the last 10 weeks, and on, the, on a ch- another challenge that you are most likely to hear at university, Althea, or school, or work, Michelle, your new job. There are people around you, even in your company, that are really haven't settled this issue. And my Part of my role as a pastor, as Pastor New Hope, as your pastor, is to help equip you with answers to contend for the faith. Actually, Jesus had two brothers who wrote two books of the Bible. Who were they? James. John wasn't a brother. James was a half-brother, that's right. Who? Jude, absolutely. So James and Jude are the two physical half-brothers of Jesus. Sometimes we miss that, right? <laughs> and, they, and Jude was the one especially who was, if, it's only one chapter, real easy. He said, oh, I read a whole book today for my devotion. Read Jude, <laughs> okay? One chapter. And he was pretty um, animated in the defense of his brother, who formerly he wrote off. And I want to appeal to a sense of your character and your duty as a Christian to contend for the faith and defend them in the same way when you hear ridiculous things said about your mother or your father or your sister, which are not true. So today, I'm going to address the topic of are there any other ways to come to God apart from Jesus Christ? Christianity, the objection comes out, is way too narrow, you guys. You're up yourselves. You're bigoted. This is what you're going to hear, so just get used to the language. You're a bigot. You're arrogant. Listen, there's nothing arrogant about two plus two is four. I don't care what you say. I'm sticking to that. (laughs) Don't care how you feel, but two and two is four. The facts are the facts. Christianity is way too narrow. And by the way, there are many ways to God. That's what you're going to hear. In various guises. Now, if that was true, this would be a problem. Why? Because if there are other ways to God, Jesus Christ was a liar. I'm just putting it out there. And the Bible is wrong, and Jesus did not speak the truth. That's the problem that you should go, whoa, that's not right. There's a logical contradiction going on here. Now, over the past few weeks, now there's a way to say that, but I'm just trying to get your attention and get you focused on this. Over the past few weeks, we've learned that Jesus, as God, validated the entire Bible, the law and the prophets, and the apostles, uh, the, the law and the prophets back there as being God's word. Now, with that in mind, I want to consider a few statements that he made about how people can find God. Because this is the actual central core of the issue. How do people find God and spend an eternity with him in heaven? This week, three people went to be with Jesus, and every one of them knew Jesus. We had Audrey Callum. We had Chris Isom, who's a pastor in Tyrua. And, of course, we had Bernard, another member of our congregation. So this is a really important question because it's about eternity in heaven. In John 14, 6, here's one of the statements, as Joshua just really well alluded to. By the way, thank God that our children's team, uh, our our team over there, our Christ team up there, the um, Galaxy team, and the youth focus on Jesus and the gospel. They're not giving them necessarily pizza and a good time, all of that comes. The primary thing is the gospel. And this is what Jesus said. He answered, I am the way. Now, it's very exclusive. In the same way, if you want to call me, you need to know my exact number. Without my exact number, you ain't getting me. There's only one answer to that, to get me on my phone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, except through me. That is unapologetic, and that is Jesus saying that. So when somebody says, ah, that's not true, they are challenging the truth of God. And you and I have responsibility to push back on that with grace and truth. 
not to just let it fly over your head. I don't want to create new waves. If you think Jesus was that sort of a guy, you need to go back and read the New Testament. Jesus created a lot of waves. Now, here's some more statements that are really clear. If you want to find God, Jesus says that he alone is the way. John 10.1, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. John 10, 9, I am the gate. I am Jesus. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. You come in any other way, not going to work. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Consider these other couple. Peter and John and Paul. So we have Jesus. Now let's look at Peter, Paul, and John. Acts 12, uh, 4, 12. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under which and the heaven given by which men must be saved. There is none. There's no other option. Two and two are four. One John 5:12. He who has the Son has life. But listen to this. So if you have him, you've got life. If you don't have him, you do not have life. And you'll spend eternity separated from him. That's the truth of the scriptures. Here's one more, 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. One and only one. Now, if Jesus says he is the one way to God, and if the New Testament writers agree with that based on what the eyewitnesses saw, then... On the basis of our established conclusion, we can know that Jesus is the one way that people will find the one and true God and have a relationship with him for eternity. Does that make sense? The basic logic of that. So, here are some unique facts that separate Jesus from the rabble. From everybody other person saying, oh, I'm the Messiah and I'm a fruitcake and, you know, I'm the, uh, all these other really weird claims. Here are the things that separate Jesus from even um, the uh, Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Muslims. Here are the separating factors that support Jesus' claim. Not, it's one thing to claim it. Here's the evidence in support of it, why he's unique. The first one is this. Well, first of all, Muhammad didn't die for anyone. I do not suggest you waste your time at this point in time reading the Quran. You can if you want. I've got a copy of it. Or the Book of Mormon. Neither the Buddha or Krishna or Joseph Smith ever die for anyone. Actually, Joseph Smith was a convicted con in the United States. That's in law. By contrast, Jesus Christ died for all people. The penalty of sin is death and eternal separation from God, but the Bible is clear. Only Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died on the cross in our place and paid the penalty for our sins. Only Jesus. Nobody else even claims that. 1 John, 1, 1 John 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a little bit further down in John, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the people, just like you saw in Joshua's illusion. Next, Romans 5.8 supports this thought. But God demonstrated... With evidence, his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's a mind blower. Once we didn't even like him, he, he initiated the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 5.3 Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The whole Bible from Genesis through to Revelation is all, including all of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything. The whole Bible is about one person, Jesus, and what he was going to do. Here's another one in 1 John 2. 2. Here's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the 
whole world. Exclusive claims here. First Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we may die to sin. That is a very important point. Die to sin. He will give you the, the desire to stop sinning and not only that, the power to stop sinning. Many years ago, I used to have a very bad mouth because I drove trucks. That's one of my other jobs. And one of the things I had to stop doing was swearing. Now, I know none of you have ever had a problem with that, right? Ever. <laughs> but what I found, what bugged me, my mate, my good buddy Grant, and I, when we first became Christians, we used to, every time we used to swear, and he was as, probably not as bad as me, but fairly up there, we used to belt each other on right there. And we got so good at this, we could almost separate the shoulder joint. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> Bang! Right in the corner. And not even hard, just whack, and you could just hit it. But, and that would stop because of physical pain. Yeah, I sorry, I forgot. Auto-reaction. But here's the problem. We could stop each other by hitting each other. The problem was, in my head, I was still swearing. And this is where I said, Jesus, I need your help. As I'm washing myself in the shower, shampooing my hair, washing the outside, soaping up, would you wash me on the inside? Would you wash my mind? I need to be cleansed by your blood. To be set free from these ridiculous thoughts, help me. So we need to die to sin. If you are a Christian, you and I are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Gossip. Stop it. Stealing pens from the work and their jackets and their overalls. Stop it. Put to death the deeds of the... That's theft. Here's a really tough one that we all struggle with. Lying. And that's because we're fearful of the people we're talking to. He bore our sins on his body on the tree so that we may die to sin and live for righteousness, and by his wounds you have been healed. No one, my point is here, friends, but Jesus Christ took our place and paid the price for us. No one. He is alone in this. Only Christianity maintains that Jesus died for the sins of all. Every other religion contradicts this truth claim. Now, only Jesus saves Next point. Only the Bible says we cannot earn our salvation. Every other religion tries to earn salvation. We cannot save ourselves. Only Jesus can rescue us from the penalty of sin. And all other religions, listen to this, all of them, you can be sure of this, contradict this truth claim. Mandating for you to be saved, you must do good deeds. And or setting other requirements as a condition of salvation. Now, be very clear. Some Christians have taken this to the nth degree. Well, I'm saved by grace. I don't have to do any good deeds. If that's the case, I think you're going to need to go read the other brother of Jesus, Mr. James, and see what he says. Good deeds will follow your salvation. They're not the root, they're the fruit. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. But here's the thing. And are justified freely by his grace. And through the redemption that came through Joseph Smith, uh -uh. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him alone. Ephesians 2.9 says this, For it is by grace that you've been saved. You know what grace is? We used to remember it saying it this way. You might, if you haven't got a quick definition of grace, let me say to you one day, what is grace? Really easy to remember. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's on his nickel. Titus 3.5. Oh, by the way, let's finish that one first. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. A gift is something that's given to you freely, not by works, so that no one 
may boast. No one can boast. And Titus 3.5, Jesus saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his wonderful mercy. It's him. It's all Jesus. And then our third, only Jesus promises eternal life as a free gift. No one else even promised that. No one dared to. Nobody had the audacity to. No one else can give us eternal life. It only comes from Jesus. Here's some verses that support that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Be cut off from the source of all life. You cut off from all the source of life, you're in trouble. But have eternal life. John 6.40 For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have, this is God's will, for you, for you, Esther, to have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And that's a great hope for Bernard and for Chris and Audrey this week because they are now in that new dimension. They're there. Don't feel sorry for them. It's for the people that left behind who's saying goodbye for a while. See you soon. Next, no one else can give us eternal life. Okay, that only comes through Jesus. For wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says, but the gift of God. This is a gift. Now, if I give you a gift, Calvin, here's my intention to give it to you. The only thing you have to do is take it from me, accept it, and unwrap it. No good if you take it and sit in the bench and stick it in your closet. You need to unwrap it for it to benefit you. No other person except Jesus has ever personally offered people eternal life. No one. Christianity, here's my point to all of you young ones, is alone in this truth. It is rubbish, total absurdity to say that all religions are the same. That's idiotic. Imbecilic. It's not based in fact. Only Jesus wants us to place all our faith in him and our hope entirely in him. Not in him plus good works. Muslims highly revere Muhammad, but not one of my Muslim friends believe that Muhammad can save them. Not one. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever, now look at this one. This is a hard one. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Why? Because his sin isn't forgiven. And one, and sorry, John 8.24, I told you that you would die in your sins. This is Jesus speaking. I told you, you would die in your sin if... You do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Jesus is very clear. It's not the things I don't understand in the scriptures that bother me. It's the things that I do understand that bother me. <laughs> They're very clear. All other religions contradict that claim. So, let's get down to business. Therefore, we now must rule out two of the remaining theistic religions, Islam and Judaism, because they both contradict the core beliefs of Christianity. And therefore, Christianity is the only theistic religion left standing. Now, about this point, somebody's going to get to this objection, and here it is. Isn't it narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the only way to God? And the answer is no, because all other religions contradict every core New Testament teaching about Jesus. And for the final time, I want to refocus on something, especially young people, that I want you to remember for the rest of your lives. Contradictory truth claims cannot both be true. Let's take a look one more time at these statements and see how clear they are about Jesus being the only way. John 14, 6, on the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Here's another one, Acts 4, 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name. 
Given them the heaven by which men may be saved. 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son of life, he who does not have the Son of God, does not have life. These declarations are unambiguous. So either there's a choice. Either Jesus and the New Testament writers are right, or they're wrong. But we must make a choice. True or false? Right or wrong? What do you say about his claims? The real question is, is it true that Jesus is the only way to God? For all the reasons we've covered in this series, this claim is demonstrably true. Now, you and I and your friends must ask, what am I going to do about it? So what? You have a decision to make. Now, one of the greatest, in my view, apologists of recent times is a man named C.S. Lewis. And he challenges us to make a decision about the claims of Jesus Christ. And this is useful. He tries to get you to think about this. Are his claims true or are they false? And he says here on this outline, on this quote here, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, a blathering fool. You can spit at him, hateful words and things like that, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But, and this is an important point, don't let anybody get away with this. Let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There's some subtlety in that, in the force of it. Lewis is right. The law of non-contradiction insists that we choose. Jesus is the only way to God, or he's not. There is no other option. It's a binary choice. So at this stage, people are then going to get a little irritated if you've laid the case for this, and there's a, well, what about people who've never heard? Anybody heard that question? Oh, that objection. Can I say, what about people who've never heard of the gospel? Can I see your hands if you've ever heard that? Okay, probably about a third of you. It's coming for those of you who haven't. What about the four billion people? Well, it's actually not that, but a lot of people who've never heard of Jesus. And you're going to hear this. A few thoughts may help you respond to this when you get fired that curveball. Firstly, you need to emphasize and start off, which is where I try to start off, is God wants all people to come to him. That's the first thing you've got to say. That's a fact. And to help us find him, God has revealed something of his nature and of his character in what he has made. It's called the book of nature. You can read about that in Romans chapter 1. What can we learn of God through creation? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what? What has been made. That's the world and creation. So that men are without excuse. Nobody's without an excuse. Psalm 50 verse 6. The heavens, look up. The heavens proclaim the righteousness, uh, his righteousness, for God himself is a judge. And by the way, that's how he judges, based on his character, not on what we think is right and wrong. Right and wrong is set in the character of God that's anchored in him. Without God, have you ever thought about this? There is no right and there is no wrong. It's personal preference. Many Germans thought it was quite okay to kill six million Jews. Lots of them. Not one, not ten, not fifteen, not a thousand, not ten thousand. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them. Does that make it right? Of course not. Right and wrong is only anchored and we get the definition of right and wrong and what God thinks is right and what he thinks is wrong. Everything else is merely human opinion which changes like the wind. 
See, God has left us a witness in his creation that we see. That's why when you go into nature, often your spirit is lifted. You feel closer to God often. That can speak to all men at all times, whether you're in the middle of Africa or Uganda or Sri Lanka or wherever you are and at all places. Creation obviously informs us that a powerful, supremely intelligent, personal, because it's planned and put together carefully, all-powerful, righteous, divine being exists and that he made everything that we see. And the work of his hands, which is creation, has pointed many, many men and women to him who had no prior knowledge of him whatsoever. Yet they deduced that he must be there and they wanted to know him. Acts 17, verse 26, look at this. For one man, from one man he made every nation and men that they should inhabit the whole earth. This is interesting. He determined the time set for them. In other words, Renee, when you would be born, you did not get a choice in this. God set that. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Interesting. Why did he do that? God did this. So that men may seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. See, God determines where each of us are born. And he knows the opportunities each one of us is going to have in his foreknowledge. Hebrews 11, 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is too, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So these verses show that people who seek him will find him. And these truths also show a couple of things here. Number one, God knows all things and the hearts of people. That's it, fill them. Psalm 42, verse 21, God knows the secrets of the heart. He knows. There's nothing hidden from him. And he knows anyone who is seeking him. That's why I love in Cornelius and Caesarea, that guy was a God-fearing Jew he, listen to this. He was a God-fearing Jew, but he wanted to know him more. So God sent who to go see him? Peter. He knows the hunger in the heart. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Many will say that. But he knows the true heart and the intent of man. Second, God is all-powerful and able to reach all people. Jeremiah 32, 27, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Of course not. Makes me laugh. Some people struggle over, you know, the walking on water. What is that? Making of wine in Cana. What is that to a God who made the universe? It's child's play. Listen, the moment the universe came into being, no miracle is off the table. How can all this come from nothing? Because that's where our latest science is. Jeremiah. Uh, so, so, so Jesus looked at them. He said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's Matthew 19, 26. I'm giving you a lot of scripture today because his words are important because they are truth. Number three. God is all-loving, and this is important, my first point, that he wants all people to be saved. He pleaded with people to turn from their waywardness and their self-centeredness and their rampant individualism. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Some of you parents know what that is. To see your children willfully going down the path that's destroying them. And you say, why are you doing this? Stop it. It's going to end in destruction. Next point, Jesus invites everyone everywhere to come to him. All that the Father gives me, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So Peter reminds us also of God's desire that the whole world would be saved. The whole world. That's God's desire. And 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow 
in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. But he is patient and not wanting any to perish. But to everyone to come to repentance. That's the will of God. That's what he wants. I love this verse which tends to demonstrate what's going to happen. This is kind of like who won the game. You can look ahead and see what's going to be like in heaven. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and before me there was a great multitude that no one could count. This is in heaven. I love this part. From every nation. I love that. Every tribe. Do you know how many tribes there are? And every language. Standing before the throne of God in front of the Lamb. So one day, standing before God's throne in heaven, there will be people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every ethnic group. Think about this for a moment. Throughout history, there will be many tribes, language groups, and ethnic groups, and nations. What an astonishing thought that not one people group that has ever been on the face of the planet will be excluded. Astonishing. From any locale, in any era, who seeks God can find him. God loves us and he wants us to bring us to himself. And if somebody wants to know God, God will see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is brought to them. Salvation, remember, is offered to everyone. No IQ test. No qualifications necessary. No monetary status necessary. Little children. Babies, people at the end of their lives. No talent required. And it doesn't matter where we are. The one true God will find a man, woman, or child who desires a relationship with him. And that person will come to know him through Jesus Christ. The all-powerful God is not limited, by the way, by conventional means. Now, for some of you are thinking, well, how does that work? Somebody, Let's take some Muslims who were born in Iran. Let's take there. Or, or Pakistan, wherever we want. Choose the, you name the nation. How does that work? They've never heard of Jesus. How do people come to Jesus? Well, if you're interested in that, you need to check out this book. Ten amazing Muslims touched by God. And there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands more. In fact, if you read a Christian post this morning, there's a whole bunch more with uh, David Platt interviewing some of them. Real life experiences about how Jesus has appeared to some of these people, literally. They never heard the gospel, didn't know who Jesus was. He appears to them, they give their hearts to Jesus, and it starts a rampant revival around them. These are ten like Billy Grahams that you can read about, who God has intervened like he did with Paul. Apart from that, there's another book too. God desires to use missionaries, sure. But God can and has spoken through people in dreams. I met a guy in India, on the border of Nepal there, face to face, bare feet, he'd walked 170 Kilometers? Kilometers, I think it was, to this conference that I was at. And his greatest desire, as he was sharing the gospel with other Muslims, that God would provide him a Timothy because he was scared he was going to die and the gospel message wouldn't go on. This guy knew nothing. He was a son of an, um, of an imam, going to grow up to be an imam, an imam and which is like a sort of Muslim pastor. And he went out to the mountains to, to get his head straight in this because his father had done it and his grandfather had been in it. And he was out in the mountains playing, God, this doesn't seem right, but if you were there, would you speak to me? Jesus appears to the guy. Never heard of Jesus. Directs him to a Bible college, gives his heart to Jesus, and now he is just a tremendous terrorizer of the, of the Islamic faith up there. Because thousands of people are coming to converts. I met the guy. He's as poor as dirt, but in his heart, he's a firebrand. You can read about some of these people like that in Hearts, Eternity in Their Hearts, by Don Richardson. Many accounts. God sometimes uses a Bible passage, a gospel tract, a vision or a dream. But what I'm telling you as a sober-minded business guy, that God for some reason is supernaturally moving in these places where no missionaries have gotten to yet. And it's encouraging. Now, if someone wants to know God, 
God knows it, and he'll get the, his word to them. And Jesus invites all to come to him. There is only one way through one Savior and one true God that is open to everyone, and the choice is yours. We all make a choice for or against the Bible, for or against the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ. Now, centuries before, a man by the name of Joshua had already made his choice to follow the one and true God, one. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, in other words, you don't want to do that, then you choose. You choose. Choose yourself this day. Whom you will serve. But, mate, as depends upon me, me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That was his choice. Very clear cut. So what does this evidence mean for me? It means for you specifically, giving a better answer for why I follow Jesus Christ. Giving a better answer. That's the film. In the light of all the evidence that shows Christianity to be true, we need to conclude this series with two final questions. How can I give a better answer to the question, why are you a Christian, Martin? How can I give a better, deeper answer to that? And how should this truth impact my life? How should all the truths that we've been examining change each one of us? Well, the Bible commands us. That's a strong word. Commands us to prepare to give an answer for anyone who wants to know why we believe. So when they're saying, Mikey, why are you a Christian? The answer is, our approach should be in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Set them apart as different. Always be prepared. Now, this is a biblical injunction. This is where this is practical for you today. This is what the Lord wants you to do because this is based on the apostles' teaching. Always be prepared to give an answer for, to everyone who asks you to give the reasons. There are reasons in your faith. Christianity is not a blind faith for the hope that you have within you. But do this with gentleness and to respect. So, number one, ask yourself, where do you need to grow intellectually in your understanding of Christianity's core beliefs? And make a list of the areas where you have questions. Actually, there's probably only about seven things that you need to to, to nail down. The questions you're typically going to get time and time and time again. It's kind of like when you prepare for an exam, right, Althea? You kind of figure out what's going to be the exam, and you get the, uh, the questions, and then you swat up on those, so you're prepared to dish it out. So make a list. That's the first step. Here's what you can do. Make a list of the areas where you need, where you've got questions. Now, if you need, you know, do you need help talking to a friend who's a Muslim, or Jehovah's Witness, or a Buddhist? Do you need a better handle on what makes your beliefs unique from all the other religions out there. Why are we exceptional? And write down a topic that you think you need to learn more of. And then state it as a question, something like this. For example, if you wanted to know more about the evidence of God, one of your friends may say to you, well, how do you know, Mandy, that God exists? Maybe that's one question you want to write down. Or, what evidence is there for the God of the Bible is really there? Maybe that's a question you want to know. Now, number two, prioritize your list of questions. This is practical. What's the most important area right now? In your family, there may be somebody who's drilling you on something. And start to study and learn about it. Now, I want to give you some real, really good resources that I use a lot. If this help, if my bullet fits your gun, shoot it. It's probably not very politically correct, but I'm talking deer hunting, okay? <laughs> okay, here we go. So let me give you a couple. Next slide. Is there one more? Yeah. Ah. So you got some questions? Well, there's half a million biblical questions and answers for them, and these are good. I can't say I've been every single one of them, but I know some of my friends curate the site. There's half a million questions. I can almost guarantee you any question that your friend asks, you can find it there. It's gotquestions.org. You may want to write that down. It's useful for you, your grandchildren, your neighbor, and your colleagues. That's one resource I want to give to you. Now, another one 
which I found, this is a very intellectual one, but it's, it's really cool. This is my friend Bill Craig, Dr. William Lane Craig. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, he is probably the foremost Christian debater in the world. Dawkins was so scared of him. Anybody heard of Richard Dawkins? Can you see hands? If you have? He was so scared of him, he wouldn't debate him. This guy would make mincemeat of him. He's a professional debater with a, uh, with a um, terminal. He actually learned. He was a student of my father in the faith when it comes to theology and apologetics, which is Norman Geisler. So him and Ravi Zacharias and uh, all were students of Norm. So this is a brilliant. Now, this has got three levels. It's got the academic level where you want to get your head blown up or you're talking to lecturers and people who really know this stuff. There's that level. Then there's an intermediate, and then there's a lay level. So there's three different levels there. Great site, reasonableFaith.org. Highly recommended. Here's another one, another friend of mine, Frank Turek. He's in North Carolina. Brilliant. Now, Frank's a bit more aggressive. He goes onto university campuses all the time, and he has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of students at Penn State secular universities. And they take on any questions. And he gives a, uh, a presentation called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You can watch some of those there. Great to send to people. Okay? Another one, cross-examined. One last one, who's another good friend of mine. Jim Wallace lives in Orange County. And he is a cold case detective. He, he's a guy that his dad was a detective and his, and, and his dad's dad was a detective and his sons are detectives. But he solves cold case murders and homicides. He's been on TV everywhere for many times, but he actually was a hard-nosed atheist for many, many years. But he became a Christian and one of the best defenders of faith based on the evidence. And that guy has got some brilliant... Now, I would highly recommend him that. If you want to get some quick answers, go to Quick Shots. And you can put that in your phone. So if you're getting barreled up in the corner, you can dismiss yourself to the bathroom, whip out your iPhone, go to Quick Shots, look up the answer to the question, and come back fully loaded. All right? Loaded for beer. I'd recommend those. So record your answers to each of your questions. Read your answers aloud. You know, it's like when you're, if you're doing history or you're doing math or whatever it may be. So growing your faith and learning to give a better answer, more complete answer, is a lifelong process. But you will make progress if you start, you choose to start. Don't allow yourself the, to, to buy the lie that it's too difficult. It's not. Because God never asks you to do something that he won't equip you to do. Now, how many non-believing friends do you have? This is a very challenging question. Because Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The Christian life is not meant to be lived inside a Christian enclave and fortress solely with Christian friends. Uh-uh. We all need to get up, get out, reach out for a dying world that desperately needs Jesus. So God has called all of his followers, you and me, to be light in the dark world because he came to seek and save the lost. Remember, CWP, even this afternoon, is an opportunity to bring your friends and to hang out with non-Christian friends. How shall the truth impact my life, daily life? Well, Jesus chose agape to describe Christ's highest form of love. And it means to be to totally and completely uh, love somebody. Jesus wants to love God so completely that we're willing to commit our whole lives to him. What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, it looks like this, loving with all my heart. He's not talking about this physical thing that goes pump, pump, about 60 beats a minute. He's pointing to the center of human desires and emotions. That's what he's talking about there. Our heart, as Jesus uses it, is where we make our choices, how we decide to think, what to do, what not to do, right, wrong, good and evil, whether we decide to please him or not. So loving God means, with all of our heart, means we make decisions that please him. We talk about, a lot about loving God, by making choices that please him, but we can't have looked the other three ways as we're down to the end of that outline, as to love God. With all my mind is the next one, or my heart, or my mind. What does it mean to love Jesus with my mind? Well, in too infrequently, is my observation, do we focus on this aspect of his command. Yet clearly we are to use our mind in a particular way if we claim to love God. Our mind is where we think, where we reason, and when we come to conclusions, Paul reasoned in the scriptures, 
Acts 7, verse 2. Debating with facts as he encouraged people to reach conclusions about the risen Jesus. That's what he was debating and reasoning with. He wasn't just shooting the breeze aimlessly about inane things. Here it is, Acts 7. But as was his custom, his pattern, his normal behavior, we went to the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, look what he did. Here's what he practically did. One, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Reason. He explained and he proved that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. That's what he did. And then with all my strength, God is asking us to have the spiritual courage and the strength to stand up for him. Not just keep out of the political, you know, be politically correct all the time. Jesus wasn't very politically correct. You have a look. He was biblically correct, and that's all he cared about. So question, do we have the moral strength and the spiritual strength to live by his moral standard? Do we have the intellectual strength to defend his word and the truth and not back down when somebody attacks something with a ridiculous truth claim? Paul actually says he tears down the strongholds that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That's strong language. Think of these folks who stood up strong in the face of difficulty. Noah. He was the only righteous man left on earth, according to the scriptures. Abraham and Lot's family were lived amongst a very, very pagan culture that rejected the true God, yet they stood strong. Moses and Aaron, they took on an incomplete political and religious system. Three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faces excruciating death, but refused to bow to the king even then. And then just think more recently, the apostles who were beaten, flogged, and hunted, and most were gruesomely martyred. This isn't a clean bullet. Gruesomely martyred because they chose to stand. I am asking you, challenging your will, will you stand? for what you believe. God used each of these individuals in their time and place because they found strength to stand in him. So God calls us to be strong and stand for him. And he's called us to be salt and light, as you can see in those scriptures there. But if we lose our saltiness, we become of no use. Friends, the Christian faith is not blind faith. It always has content. And the content is Jesus He's the light of the world, and he wants us to point people to him. And he's given us each of us a mind, and he expects us to use it in loving him and sharing what we know, not just keeping it to ourselves like a Linus blanket or a comforter. Jude, who I talked and started off at the beginning, 1-3, who is a brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus, urges us contend. He says, Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, which is important, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and all entrusted for the saints. There's an urgency in that. And some of us have forgotten that. What does it mean to love him finally with all your soul? Isn't it the same as loving him with your heart and mind? No, no. Your soul is what will survive you at death and live on into eternity. And to love God this way, we begin by asking him to forgive our sins and to come into our life. And that's what we mean when we say somebody has become a Christian. He or she has accepted God's free gift of salvation. And Jesus Christ came for the one overriding purpose, to die in your place and mine, and to, two, pay the price for our sin and death. He did that when God placed our sins on him when Jesus was on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.29 says, As God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this means we don't have to be separated from him for all eternity. We can choose to live in his presence and experience love, joy, and peace, and a deep-seated fulfillment that he originally intended. All we have to do is accept his forgiveness, and we do that by accepting Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We know that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We also know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever eternal life or everlasting life, some versions say. Most importantly for some of you in this room, notice this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Some of you say, I've already done that, Pastor Ian. Well, that's good. Here's the other news, which maybe you've forgotten. Once you are a Christian, God expects you to share that with others. He wants you to be burdened for the souls of others. We should all be burdened for anyone that lacks a saving relationship with Jesus and will endure an eternal separation from God. Perhaps today, though, you're the other sort, and you've never, ever committed your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never considered the unique claims, truth claims of the Bible and haven't understood who Christ is or why he came. It's an incredible event that took place in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago as Jesus hung on a Roman cross and he became our substitute. He took our place and he paid the penalty for our sin and this is what makes it possible for God to give all of us forgiveness of our sins. All we must do is accept this gift of salvation. So today, if you have never accepted Jesus' offer, you may have heard about it, but have you accepted it? And you'd like to do so, why not use this prayer I wrote down on your outline and up here on the board behind us and ask him to come into your life and to forgive your sins. You don't have to close your eyes, but I would ask you to please look at this. And in your heart, if this is what you want to do, in fact, for those of you who even feel comfortable, I'm going to. I'm just going to read this aloud. And if you want to join me, just if this is you, do not do this as this is not you. If you do not want to do this, that is your choice. But there are implications with that choice. You are free to make your choice. You're just not free of the consequences of that choice. So I'm going to read this. And if that's you, and, and, or you already are a Christian, and you want to reaffirm this, join with me and let's read this prayer aloud together. Dear God, I know that I have sinned against you. And I know I need to be forgiven. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I accept his free offer of forgiveness. Forgive my sins, Lord Jesus. Come into my life now as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for doing this for me. Thank you that I am now yours Thank you that when my time here on earth is done, I will spend eternity in heaven with you. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer from your heart and said, this is me, you have just become part of God's family. And you've been restored to your creator and will spend eternity with him. What I'd like to do, if that's for your first time, on the communication card, which you'd have gotten when the offering buckets go by, would you just put in there, Check, I'm committing my heart to Jesus this morning. And we would love to send you a Bible and some information to read. I'd suggest in that Bible you start with the book of John, and we can help you read through that.